John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, we've got our first ever Super Mega Awesome Movie Review Madness! 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 For 2019, and we've got a big group of them for this one. We got three new releases that came out for 2019, and then I was able to find a theater that was having a whole bunch of the leftovers from 2018. So we're going to have a whole plate on our hands. We've got The Upside, A Dog's Way Home, Replicas, On the Basis of Sex, Mary Queen of Scots, and Ben is Back. So, without further ado, let's get started. I'm sorry you gotta have a surprise party in your huge mansion. Some of us got real problems. I'm fighting to see my son. And whose fault is it? Is it yours, or is the world out to get you? Are you mad? You wanna break this big-ass bottle of wine? Yeah! What else you wanna do, bull? Del made a mess. So I surrender. This is the I can understand why so many interviewers and talk shows aren't interested in talking about this movie because and wanting to focus more on Kevin Hart's, you know, own personal whatever is going on, you want to call it. But yeah, unfortunately, I, I don't want to I'm going to save that for when I actually talk about the Oscars themselves when they announce the nominees. And so we got to talk about this movie uh, looking into it. It's based on a French movie called The Untouchables, and that itself is where the base on a true story comes from. That one was more so inspired by the events of an Algerian man um, who was uh, hired by a wealthy man, a wealthy quadriplegic to care for him. I've yet, I remember seeing the poster and like the video cover for The Untouchables. I think when I worked at Hollywood Video or when I was around that sa- around that period of time, like 2008, 2009, and I remember thinking that looked interesting, that, that it was an interesting cover, and I had no idea what it was, and now knowing what it was, I might go check it out at some point. That's something to put on the back burner. But yeah, this is vet- not, this is, this is really deviating from the true story, I'm guessing, because an Algerian may, an Algerian immigrant to France caring for a well you know care for a wealthy quadriplegic is a little bit different than just Kevin Hart because let's be real this is Kevin Hart this, he's not playing a character he's he's just Kevin Hart reading the lines and so yeah the the immigrant angle is much much you know much more different than the whole Kevin Hart as an inner city black man uh, it's different. It's not worse. And that's, I don't, I don't want to say that. I don't want to say they should have stuck with an immigrant. It would have been more faithful to the original story, but you know, it's, it, I mean, there is definitely that dichotomy between, uh, lower, you know, the po- people living around the poverty line and the people and the kind of people that, uh, the Brian Cranston's character, how they live. So, I mean, I get what they were going for, but <sighs> just look, man. I don't. I know. I know. People are. It, it's become a hot button topic lately. But I don't. 
I just don't like Kevin Hart, man. I never liked Kevin Hart. I don't think there's ever been a Kevin Hart performance that I thought was anything better than average. Like, he was just always the same energy, the same per- he gave the same performance in every single movie he was in. And as for a stand-up, let's be real, there's just infinitely better stand-ups out there. I mean, people, like, I got into it with a guy on Facebook that I uh, unfriended because, well, mainly because I didn't even know who the guy was. It was just somebody I met through uh, a Facebook group who unfriended, who requested me, and there was no reason, there was really no reason, like, we weren't really friends, we were just acquaintances through the internet. But he was—he didn't—he didn't like that Kevin Hart was under so much heat for telling these jokes, which are demonstrably taste, tasteless and not really funny jokes. And I, you know, I just pointed out that I don't think he's that funny. And the guy came back with, "Well, he's popular. He sells at stadiums." And if that's the, uh, and if that's the case, fine. But the, but once again, I come back to. If, who is the who are the people that you're continually going to reference back to? Like, Dane Cook, say what you want about him. He knew how to deliver jokes in a way that got people to quote them back. You can do Dane Cook jokes. You can quote Dane Cook jokes and say, oh, that's Dane Cook. You can quote a Chris Rock joke and say, oh, that's Chris Rock. You know, you quote a Jeff, uh, not a, I mean, you, Jeff Dunham's accent humor, so you would know uh, his jokes to pe- for people. I couldn't name you a... Gabriel Iglesias has bits that you can quote and share and that are recognizably his. I could not tell you a single Kevin Hart bit. I could not tell you a single Kevin Hart joke off the top of my head. From all the times I've listened to him and I've seen some of his specials and I've watched his movies and I couldn't tell you other than infantile screaming. Like, him screaming like he's Chris Tucker in the 90s is how I picture Kevin Hart. That's all I can see with him. I, he is just ultimately not that funny to me. And I don't care if you like him or not, but point of the matter is he's ultimately not that funny. And in this movie, he's the biggest just weight holding it down. Like, this story, I'm sure, is great in the French version, but... What it comes down to is Kevin Hart is just being Kevin Hart, only he speaks in his lower register. Uh, what that by what I mean by that is when in reference to singing and some and often speaking, you you can speak in a higher register, so your voice is all the way up here, up towards your nose and your throat, or you can speak in a lower register where the voice is lower and down towards your diaphragm. So he's talking more from this. Sort of thing. Instead of his usual talking up here in his head voice. If you get what I'm saying. Uh, so yeah, it's just him not going into his head voice. Not going into almost falsetto levels of uh, of pitch. And him not being as manic. So it's a toned down Kevin Hart. But I just don't like Kevin Hart. You know, chill Kevin Hart is not anywhere... Still doesn't make me laugh... As you know, just like his manic Kevin Hart self does, like his usual style doesn't make he didn't make me laugh in night school. He definitely didn't make me laugh in um, the uh, what was the stupid one he did with Josh Gad? Uh, 
wedding something, uh, whatever it was. He, everything I've seen him in, he he was always kind of the, just kind of like the person who sucked all of the comedy out of the room when it went on. That's why I'd never wanted to, before I was doing reviews regularly, I never had any interest to see um, uh, the one he did, whatever the one he did with uh, Will Ferrell was, uh, where they're about, uh, about him teaching uh, Will Ferrell to how, to how to act in prison. I had no interest in seeing that because Kevin Hart does not does not matter to me personally. Just I don't care. There are plenty of other comics, black men comics, black female comics, uh, other other just other comics and, and just out there. There are so many other funnier, more interesting, more committed comics out there than Kevin Hart, whose biggest draw I can gather is he shows up. Like, the whole point is that he's got hustle, that he's got, that he's able to keep up, that he's able to continually show up for stuff. That's it. He's like the Ryan Seacrest of comedy, from what I can tell, because it's definitely not because he's funny for me. He, and what and his delivery, literally anybody could do that. He's not telling me jokes that that make me care. But even when he's talking about his, his family, and it's supposed to be personal, I, I don't laugh i i don't think i've ever laughed at him and if it was it was never like it was always fleeting it was like huh okay and then i moved on whereas comedians like Pat oswald or brian Posehn or uh uh who is another uh oh um hassan minaj or um uh who's another one ali wong i think is another one who has been able to do that there have been comics who sit with me long after I've heard them joke, and I'll go back, oh my god, I remember that bit. Oh god, that was hilarious. Kevin Hart was never one of those comics for me, so I'll, I just don't care about him. And then, as and he, but at the same point, even if you took him out of this movie, it would not be a good movie. It would still be a very mediocre movie, because Brian Cranston is fine. Nicole Kidman's kind of just there. She She pretty much exists for the whole point. The problem with this movie, like with so many movies, is in the script. The script is just basic, by-the-numbers sort of storytelling. It doesn't do anything that out of the ordinary. Like, the stuff you see in the trailer, that's pretty much all you needed to see from this movie. It doesn't really know how to tell this story and make it compelling. And even if it did, and even if it was a better a great script, the director ultimately wasn't able to present that to the audience in my opinion. And like there are whole points where well, there's like a whole thing very early on when he's first hired where Kevin Hart has three strikes before he's fired and no matter how many times he screws up after the supposed third strike that uh that Brian Cranston saved him from, he, that the whole thing is just dropped. It's just completely dropped. I don't know how many of this, how much of this comes directly from the Untouchables script, and but I know the opening was an in media res thing where we start with him taking uh, taking Brian Cranston to the hospital and being pulled over, but that but that didn't do anything. I don't know how it, I don't know how it works in the French movie, but I'm guessing it were it was better thought out than just here where they basically do it because oh they did it so here's a reference. I don't I don't understand. 
why what you would get out of this movie that you wouldn't get out of something something my left foot i've never seen a frame of before i only know the premise and i feel like that knew how to tell the story and make it compelling and interesting and and something you could can you know you know, can get something out of watching whereas the upside it kind of fits as a January release. It's just kind of a nothing movie. So ultimately, yeah, Cryonstand is good, but they don't give his character that much to do. And Kidman is, I think, trying her Australian accent, or, uh, but she doesn't. She just always kind of comes off like she's phoning it in. And of course, you know, people, you know, as much as people are talking about Kevin Hart and uh, his homophobic tweets, there's a whole sequence in this movie, there are two whole sequences in this movie about Kevin Hart not uh, not wanting to insert a catheter to Brian Cranston, even though that's literally his job. Nah, man, I'm, I'm, you know, it's like, I'm a real man, I can't be touching no, I can't be touching no that thing. Like, he can't even say the word penis. There's a whole joke about he can't say the word penis. Once again, it's kind of hard to separate the art from the artist. That feels like something that feels like a Kevin Hart bit, considering his style of comedy. That's all I'm saying. So, this wasn't going to be a good movie with uh, without Kevin Hart, and with and with Kevin Hart, it just makes me want to stare clear even more. But yeah, I'd have to compare it to the original to be sure which is better. But I'm assuming that one has to be right. It can't be worse than this. And this is just mediocre. This is mediocrity at its finest. I was very far from home, but I knew Lucas was waiting for me, and I had to go and find him. So wake me up when it's all over, when I'm wiser and I'm... Oh, look, a snack! Even better than a tiny piece of cheese. We all face things that are hard. The only thing that gets us through it... Are the special people in our lives, and I was never going to stop searching until I found mine. That dog saved his life. I do not get the appeal of this franchise. This is not a direct sequel or in any way related to A Dog's Purpose. That one's coming out later this year. Thank you, Sony. I'm guessing it's Sony. I know this is particular. I know this is specifically Sony, and specifically Sony Animation. We'll get to that. But I don't think this guy's a good writer. Who's this guy? What's this guy's name? He wrote the screenplay with his wife. W. Bruce Cameron. The dude is just ultimately not a good writer. Uh, he's helped... Okay, he helped write his uh, wife's movie Muffin Top, uh, Love Story. Uh, he wrote on Eight Simple Rules. And then, yeah, he wrote the he wrote the screenplays for um, A Dog's Purpose and A Dog's Journey and this, A Dog's Way Home. He also wrote something called Cook Off with an exclamation point. Cook Off! Which just looks horrendous. This, this, it looks like, quite frankly, one of the worst movies ever made. It just... I 
don't what is the, it is such a hideous cover i can't imagine anybody would want to see it just what is happening so yeah that's what this guy's known for uh, an independent comedy a really terrible independent comedy I can't, I can't speak for muffin top and then writing on a tv show and then writing these really really overrated books about dogs like he's got this whole franchise out about these dogs and and about dogs and they're like trying to write from the perspective of dogs and they're all garbage i can say i if it just from a dog's purpose if that's the kind of writing this guy does and he puts his name on they're all i'm i'm going to assume they're all garbage because that's what that's what i'm getting from this and and i'll say this at least this movie doesn't have cons- constant dog death and reincarnation. At least this movie has a singular dog that we follow the whole time and not a, a weird immortal essence that is forced to live and die co- constantly in the servitude of some of some family. It's God, God, a dog's purpose is such garbage. I'm guessing its sequel isn't going to be much better. Ugh. At any rate, this movie, it's a lesser homeward bound. Let's be real. Uh, it, this is this story is but has been done so many... Benji, I think, has done this a couple of times. Um, I think Fluke was listed as one of the similar plots for this kind of thing. Uh, it's it, But basically, for those who grew up in the 90s, or even from the 60s, because it's based on an old, Disney, old 60s movie uh, from Disney, uh, Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey... That is basically what this this movie is going for. And at least that movie knew how to present adventure and drama and pathos and characters. Here, it's Bryce Dallas Howard narrating over the movie so that we have the dogs in her monologue. And just mundane dog dog related activities that will sometimes go into weirdly morbid that's the other thing too is that this dude has a weird apparently he's immune to tonal whiplash because he'll go from twee and just precocious and precious to absolutely horrifying and morbid so here the story is uh Bella, uh, Bryce House Howard's uh, the dog character, is is um is like born to a litter of, pu- of pit bull pups underneath an abandoned house that get picked up by animal control while she escapes, and she is picked up by L- Lucas, who is a college student, I believe, who is stu- studying to, I believe, work in like some kind of medicine or maybe medical administration or something like that. He works at the VA hospital uh, with his mom. And he finds Bella because he's taking care of the cats that are living underneath this uh, abandoned house. And he brings Bella home and and he kind of sees to her uh, maturity and her growth. And it becomes a thing where she goes to the VA hospital uh, after... Because there's a weird sub, the weirdest subplot. The main antagonist of the first act is a is a Dan Castellaneta looking developer who's trying to build on a property, but he can't because there are cats living there. And he's like, I get the permits from the city, and he compl- and he clearly lied about it. 
And when he's presented with evidence, he's like, why can't you just let me build? And I'm like, why don't you... You already had animal control come once. Why don't you have animal control come one more time and get the rest of the... This plot is so stupid. So, yeah. um, So, because this dude has no idea how to run a business... Because he apparently doesn't live in the real world where he's like, I'm, I'm villainous, so I'm going to have to treat the dog, the catching dogs like they're nothing and I must build no matter what. I can't literally, I don't have to follow city ordinances. My, I've got all of City Hall in my packet. What? Like, this dude, all he has to do is get animal control to come one more time, get the rest of the animals, and get them out of there. That's literally all he has to do, and he can't. And he can't do that. He's he's will he think about it this way? If you is I, I'm not if I'm not mistaken, lying on a city legal document, a municipal legal document, is probably tantamount to jail time. Not that this guy serves any, but he lied on his permit, and there's proof of it. How does he still have that property? How is the city of Denver not like, okay, you lied to us about about animals living on your property. You can't build there. Not only that, but we're revoking your license and we're and we're taking that property and we're selling that property off to the highest bidder because you clearly are are you clearly are untrustworthy. Like, like am I like, am I overthinking this? Is that not is that not how it works? I'm, I I would assume that's how it would work. You lie on legal documents, you get in trouble for it, fines, jail time, something. This guy gets nothing. <sighs> At any rate, because Lucas and especially and like especially his mom and uh, his later uh, wife, uh, gr- girlfriend, then what later wife. Uh, because they keep being a thorn in his side, he's gonna make it so that their dog Bella, because she is technically a pit bull, even though she's clearly not a pit. If she's a pit bull, she's a weird mix of a pit bull. Like I could not tell what breed she was. I could not look at that and say I could like okay. Look up pictures of the dog in this movie, grown up, and tell me that's a pit bull and not like some kind of hound mix. Because that dog is, is not a... You could not clearly tell me that dog is a pit bull. But because apparently enough animal control operatives say it's a pit bull. And they admit in the movie that it's all arbitrary. They Bella can't live within city limits. And if, and if she's seen on the streets of Denver, she is not only going to be brought in, but euthanized. Which I don't know if Denver is still one of those cities that has pit bull laws. I'm assuming probably they're one of those weirdo granola crunching cities. They're like, oh my god, pit bulls are so dangerous. As though you can't just be like, hey, look, if your dog attacks somebody, we're taking it from you. And we're going to, you know, make sure it's in a better home. Because clearly you are doing something wrong. (sighs) So yeah, um... Then, then, then the second act of this movie becomes uh, Lucas and his mom having to move to a new place outside of city limits, so they don't, so they can keep Bella. And in the meantime, Bella is taken down to uh, Olivia, Lucas's girlfriend, later wife, uh, one of her relatives in New Mexico. Uh, to hold, it's basically like holding on to Bella until Lucas, uh, until Lucas and his mom find a new place. 
and because you know Bella's a dog, she doesn't understand. She takes the first opportunity she has to escape from there, from that, from the from her home and from the place in New Mexico, and try and find her way back home. And that's where the you know going home, dog's way home thing. So she goes up through New Mexico, all the way up through Colorado, and along the way. Um, Let's see. What are the what were the big things again? There was there was a she she uh, helped save a a hike. Well, let's see. First, she um, teams up with a pack of roving uh, roving dogs who teach her how to find food in the garbage, and then she spends like a, a, an entire year out in the wild caring for a, 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 a an orphaned uh, cougar kitten and helping raise her, and then. After saving a man from an avalanche, she is brought in by these two by this uh, interracial gay couple. But the other thing too, Olivia and Lucas are interracial, uh, and then the other prominent couple in the movie, the gay couple that adopts Bella and uh, the uh, and the like, the hiker's other dog are uh, both interracial. So I mean, there's a lot of diversity in this movie. So I'll give it. And uh, West Studio also shows up, uh, indigenous actor West Studi. So. Uh, so I mean this. So I have no qualms with the casting in this movie, but yeah. So Bella's adopted by this uh, gay couple who, and once she has the opportunity to head back on her way home to Lucas, she takes it and then runs into her the cougar kitten. Oh, it's all grown up, and then finally makes her way home and gets hit. And then there's a whole whole schmaltzy like really tear drinking. I'm not gonna lie. I'm, I, I, reunion scenes like that, they're they're always gonna make me cry because those are just. I mean, it made me cry in Homeward Bound, even even in a really slap shot and really poorly put together movie like this. It's going to make me cry. It's 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 just how that works. But yeah, it so yeah, that's that's basically once again, it's basically Homeward Bound. You're all you're getting, and it's so awkward and not real, not well. And like the big names in this are Ashley Judd. Oh, that's the other thing. Uh, Bella ends up with a homeless vet as well. And that's the other thing too. Like that's what I'm talking about. The darkness in here is like pit bull laws and the fact that they have to be euthanized, homeless vets, and vet, you know the post traumatic stress disorder that vets go through, the paid hunting and how it affects wildlife. Because that's the thing. The the cougar kitten is orphaned because two hunters bag bag its mother because um because they can get like a thousand dollars for it. So, like, trophy hunting and, you know, that sort of thing, that how those affect things. It's, it, it wants to tackle heavy subjects, but it's, but in between that, it's like, oh, cutesy and, and, and sweet and adorable. And it's like, oh, my God, pick a lane. Like, Homeward Bound didn't do any of this. Homeward Bound was a straight-up adventure. It's a kid's adventure movie. So there's some fun bits that are well within the tone. And then when it gets dark, it's it's reasonably dark. It doesn't get homeless vets dark. It's more like, oh, no, will, he, will, he, you know, will the cat and dog make it? What's going to happen next? That kind of thing. It's, ten- it's tense. It's tension. Here, it's like, good lord. And, of co- and unfortunately... You're, while you're watching it, if you uh, have any savvy about writing and plot structure, you know exactly where it's going. So you know nothing all that bad is going to happen. In fact, if something did happen... Well, while I'm watching this movie, I automatically pictured a way better movie in my head. Where you get to see her become... It's basically like a Jacqueline and Call of the Wild thing. Where Bella 
because she can't find Lucas, stays and hangs out with the cougar. And then they become, like, best friends, and they live out in the wild. And then maybe one day she finds Lucas is hiking up there, and Bella runs into him. But that I thought that would have been interesting. And then Bella has to choose whether she wants to live with Lucas or her best friend in the wild. I think that would have been a way better story than what we get, which is just basically homeward bound, but not as good. And it's all awkwardly acted. No, Everyone's like... Everyone's like, uh, uh, what am I, uh, am I doing this right? Uh, it's not, it's so, it's, it, it's either that or it's all over the top ham fisted. Like the person who directed this had no idea how to direct actors. And then of course you get to the big stuff. CGI in this from Sony Pictures Animations of all people is absolutely terrible. Like this is, this, this is coming out a, a year after Peter Rabbit, which had much more realistic-looking animal anthropomorphic animals. Here, they look like PS3 graphics. They straight-up look like PS3 graphics on the screen. And it is so jarring to watch them, because you can clearly tell when the CG kicks in. It is so off-putting. It is so bad. It, this is, should be unacceptable. Oh, it is absolutely unacceptable to witness so i can't, i'm i'm shocked that they put it out in this state but yeah um i would never i would i would rather watch this over a dog's purpose because at least yeah, this is like like fun bad like oh my god this is so stupid it's stupid it's stupid bad not insulting bad but still if you want to watch this story just go watch Homeward Bound. Maybe not the sequel. I don't know how good the sequel is. Just go watch Homeward Bound. That's such a good movie. I'd have to rewatch it again to see if it holds up now as an adult. But as a kid, I remember that movie front to back. And it should still hold up overall just because of how well it's written. Good writing will save or break a movie. It will make or break a movie. Here, it definitely broke it. What if something horrible goes wrong? Something already has. This has got way out of hand. I hope you're ready to go to jail. The experiment's over. No, it isn't. And I'll go. is just to lose you again. Alright, last of the new releases is a movie that was actually shot in 2016 and was slated to release in 2017. And now it's in 2018, and I have no idea why. I could not find any information on why this is coming out in 2019 and not any time earlier. It it really it floors me how little information I could find on this movie. The, oddly enough, the one thing I could find was the fact that it cost $10 million to advertise. Normally, studios don't list how much they pay in advertising fees. This one was right on the Wikipedia page because it, it cited to a, a an article about it. So... Of all the movies, I, of all the movies I've seen, this is the only one where I actually know the advertising budget, so I can factor that in to the box office. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, this comes from the director of 2008's Traitor. Uh, I forget his name, but he's mainly worked in TV lately. And then his last, he also has been writing, like he wrote The Last Stand for um, Jeffrey Nachmanoff is the guy is the director. He wrote um, The Last Stand for Arnold Schwarzenegger, the one where he's like the mayor of a New Mexico town who goes to war with the cartel. And he wrote The Abysmal, The Tourist, back in 2010. So this guy is not exactly prolific. And what it does create is debatable. I've yet to see Trader. I have no idea if it's any good. But he's not exactly making the best stuff here. Uh, as for this movie, uh, Keanu Reeves was the one who was initially pushing it, from what I could tell. He wanted to do this with a, a partner of his in his uh in one of his um, companies, uh, and, you know, he wanted to t- push this kind of story, and it's a good story. The premise here is you have a a scientist who is on the verge of imprinting human memory and neurochemistry in the brain, uh, the human brain, onto, synthet- onto a synthetic brain, and he just needs to find the right, right, thi- the right thing to ju- make it work successfully. And he's, you know, he's always consistently on the verge of losing the funding from his superior who is, I have no idea who the actor is, but he's just like, just, just the pits. He is uh, John Ortiz. I have no idea if I've seen him in anything else. Apparently he's in Silver Linings Playbook, American Gangster, AVP Requiem, and Miami Vice. Those are what he's big known for. Oh, he was the scientist in a Bumblebee. So I have seen him. And he's also in Peppermint. And the Cloverfield Paradox. So the guy gets around. Okay, so I do recognize him, just not by name. Uh, here, he's so, so lazily evil. He's just, like, the most stereotypical, like, corporate evil kind of guy. And we'll get back into him later, but suffice to say that this movie's just ultimately not that good. And I think it, once again, comes all the way down to the writing. The premise is really interesting, and I feel like Philip K. Dick came up with this, it could probably be amazing. But the idea that, uh, well, the premise here is that Colonel Reeves is the scientist who, while he's working on this project, loses his family in a car crash, and he decides to go against not only the laws of man, but the laws of nature in the hopes of bringing them back and what that entails. And all that that entails. So... This could be a really compelling and interesting movie. The people making it have no idea how to do that. The writing is basic at best. It is it has almost no understanding of how of how to handle these sorts of things. Like there are major major plot holes and things that make you wonder, well, why didn't you do it this way? Why are you doing it this way? Why, why, why wouldn't he just do this? And it's like, oh, the, ultimately the reason is because we want to tell this plot, not that one. We don't want to think about what would really happen. We want to think, we want to do what we want to do. So we're foregoing the logic and how, and reality in it's, and that's fine. Uh, I, I follow uh C Robert Cargill, um, uh, who was who was the writer for um, uh, Sinister and Doctor Strange? I follow him on Twitter, and he he well had a thread recently about how you movies are not rea- movies should not be treated as reality but facsimiles of reality. We don't need to see somebody putting their clothes on; we can see them with their clothes on and assume they put their clothes on. So, so yeah, I do want to. I don't. I you know I don't want to. But 
What I'm talking about, and that's not what I'm really talking about this with this movie. This movie has major, like, actual plot holes. Not like, well, why, you know, not like freaking Cinema Sin style nitpicks, in, you know, in this sense, but actual, like, major plot holes that make you wonder why is it, go- why, what, is, you know, how come people aren't saying this or asking about this or why isn't this happening? This, the, not, not only did Keanu Reeves not, character not think it through, the writers ultimately did not think it through. Nobody thought a lot of this stuff through. And then when the big reveal happens, it makes even less sense. So, yeah, ba- so it's, it's so, it's trying. I'll give it that. I don't want to hate on this too much because it is trying. But as it turns out, this is the writer of London Has Fallen and Peppermint. So the writer here isn't exactly stellar in his own right. Uh, he got his work writing that uh, Thomas Jane Punisher short, Laundry Day. And ever since then, has been writing basically mediocre crap. Uh, and here it's just... I don't know what happened. I, 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 couldn't, I, I couldn't tell you what happened. I think part of it is the writing. The writing is subpar. They're trying to write higher above their pay grade. They're writing about subjects that they don't really understand, and they're and they're trying to try write a story that they're not thinking through the whole way. It reminds me a lot of Transcendence, where that movie was or um, Lucy. Both of those movies tried to write way above their pay grade and try to sound so super duper smart, and ultimately they end up sounding dumber than a box of rocks. And here. The writing is along those same lines, though not as egregious. And on top of that, the director, I don't think, has any idea how to direct actors. Because everyone in here who's who's a decent actor in their own right, John Ortiz is not bad. Like, you watch him in Bumblebee for as little as he's in there, and he's and he's actually pretty good. But you compare him to Keanu, like, and Keanu Reeves is good, usually. Thomas Middleditch is good. And Alice Eve, as the wife, is usually good. I haven't seen her in a lot, but I, you know, I know she's capable of being good. But, yeah, I have no idea what went wrong. It's just no people have people are not acting human, even a bit along the sides of like cloning and replication and whatnot. People aren't have no idea how to act like normal people. They're not direct. They're not directed to act normal. Is what everything is so awkward and off putting. It's similar to a Dog's Way Home, where like it's not it, these people have no these directors have no idea how to recreate normal human behavior. And so it's continually off-putting. And that's, and I feel like that's, you know, whereas as a movie, you can accept certain gimmies, you can accept certain facts that you, you know, you don't need to see certain things on screen to know that they happened. Here, we are watching things happen on screen and they don't look natural. They just and it's and it's something you normally see from inexperienced directors. And I forget who it was. I think it was Jordane Searles. That I also follow on Twitter. Is her or somebody else who said, or I think she may have retweeted somebody saying that all directors should take a course in acting. All directors should have a base level idea of how acting works so that they know how to direct it. And I could not agree more because that's the worst thing I see. When it comes to a lot of the a lot of these just not quite as good movies, is that the directors have no idea how human interaction and behavior works. So they'll ask, they'll either have the actors do it themselves, or they'll direct them in an odd way, and it'll come off as off-putting. And what we end up with is a weird off-putting performance from normally good actors. 
And a better director could get a better performance out of them as long as that director knew how to direct actors. So many directors come from the cinematography side, the editing side, the production side, that they have no idea how things how to do things in front of the camera. They have no idea how they can do great design work, like Michael Bay. He he knows how to great, make great visuals, but all of his acting is all the acting in this movie is terrible because he has no idea how to direct actors because he has no idea how acting works. And I feel like that's why that should be like almost integral to directing. So if you're going to school for filmmaking, you should take fil- acting classes as well as directing classes. So when you direct, because if you want to be a director, you should know what to look for in an actor so that they get a good performance. Anyway, yeah, this this is just the pits of a movie. It this should have been released direct to video, but for some reason, entertainment. Studios Motion Pictures is the one who released this. And I swear to Cthulhu and all of the Elder Gods that that is a front for some kind of mob. I don't know who it is. The Russians, the Triads, the Yakuza, the, and any number of the cartels. Wh- whoever is fronting the money for this studio. and apparently, But apparently, no. They've been around for two decades. They used to work. It was Byron Allen's... Uh, production for tv student for tv shows and now they're making movies another well not making they're releasing movies that should not be made and apparently they're following an asylum style model of releasing schlock alongside much more popular movies of the same genre because apparently i think they have 47 meters down which there's gonna be a i saw a trailer for the sequel to 47 meters down oh god this is gonna be bad but they released that alongside the much more critically acclaimed, even though it's also terrible, The Shallows. So, Entertainment Studios Motion Pictures. It seems like a front, but apparently it's legitimate. Uh, and they're responsible for this as well. And it somehow led to the... They somehow are the ones that ended up with the hot potato after two years. Either or they just sat on it. I have no idea. There's no information on why this took so long to release. But frankly... This should have been in uh, VOD or direct-to-video. Put it on Redbox or something, because this did not need to be in theaters. It's it, Whatever interesting premise there is is completely let down by subpar writing and ultimately weak acting. So with all of the 2019 releases out of the way, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about some of the leftovers from 2018. <laughs> You like horror films. You like gore. You want to hear four badass women discuss and dissect modern and classic horror films. Join us at Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, a good ghoul's guide to horror. Oh! On the gun, we can't have Don't read the Latin. Do you know that in the world of the insane, you will find a kind of truth more terrifying She thinks gender equality is a civil right. These laws are obstacles to our children's aspirations. 
you lose, you will set the woman's movement back 10 years. You don't get to tell me when to quit. Get your emotions in check. You first. You've been ready for this your whole life. There is no aspect of the law at which you can be bested. The word woman does not appear even once in the U.S. Constitution. Nor does the word freedom. Your Honor. Here comes the change. Our first one is one that I'm assuming a lot of people had high hopes for, and that is the Ruth Bader Ginsburg biopic starring Felicity Jones on the basis of sex. And uh, one of my, one of my friends on Stardust pointed this out. Uh, he gave it some more credit, some credit where it was due, because rather than try to tell an entire life story in two hours, it focused specifically on the case that made Ruth Bader Ginsburg's career. And namely the one where her and her husband argued that, uh, argued argued in favor of a client who was denied a tax, you know, denied a tax deduction for caring for his elderly mother. Because in the law at the time stated that only women could write off write off their taxes as caregivers, and this came out the same year. This is you know since this came out last year, the very tail end of last year. This was in the same year as the critically acclaimed documentary RBG, specifically about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and more so her entire life. Whereas here. This one was kind of weird and not quite, people weren't quite sure what to make of it. The trailer made it look like almost like a Lifetime movie of the week. And the poster is, <laughs> is pretty silly is because you got Kaiju Ginsburgzilla leaning against the Supreme Court. Like she's going to stomp in and crush the glass ceiling from over top of it. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's pretty silly when you, th- when you look at it. Oh. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, so yeah, you get the kaiju poster of her, and then you, when you watch the movie, it's pretty by the numbers. I think that's what, what really, why why it really never stuck with me, was because you've got the story, even the, one, even the one specifically that they're focusing on, that showcases Ruth Bader Ginsburg as a true powerhouse in the law, and especially, uh, you know, gender-based discrimination law, and... Yet the act, even though the actors are doing really good, Ar- Army Hammer's good, Felicity Jones is good, Kathy Bates is all right for you know for as little as she's in there. But then you've got like Stephen Root and Sam Watterson who are basically there. Sam Watterson's basically doing the same performance he did when he was on Law and Order as the head of Harvard Law, and then later one of the solicitors, I think, for the IRS, something like that. And Stephen Root is just kind of in the background, not really of any importance. He was another Harvard Law professor that ended up in apparently the Nixon administration, I think, is when this was taking place. And what it comes down to is it's focused so much more on being a fantasy and a, and, and like an empowerment, empowering myth. Like, oh, look at all – I mean some of it is gen- – like there's a scene where you see – Ruth get upset over minor over like the way people talk about her in front of her husband and so they're like things those are real issues that women have to face especially at that point in time but what it what it felt more like was hey yeah feminism but it's not like it's not like a real potent feminism it's more like Hollywood feminism where it's like yeah girl power as long as it's marketable 
you know, marketable girl power is what this felt a lot like. And I think what's, what hit it home for me was the very end of this movie featured actual arguments recorded in audio from Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the time. And hearing her make arguments, Felicity Jones was not given anywhere near as good of stuff to say as what she actually, as what the actual Ruth Bader Ginsburg said. I think that's what really hit it home for me is that here you have, when you compare what Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the actual arguments she made, Felicity Jones is essentially a pretty face reciting like almost pageant-esque recreations of that same stuff. It's not like hard-hitting feminism. It's more like soft-spoken, pretty feminism. Which I'm not saying is a bad thing. I can't speak to that as, you know, a cishet white man. But at the same time, when you're witnessing that and you're comparing it to the actual thing, all you can think is, all you're just, you're just a pale imitation. Like, you can't really compare to the actual thing. It's like watching somebody make a, try to make something, but make it look prettier. And in doing so, they lose the substance of it. So, like, oh, Perfect example. Think of it this way. If you learn anything about marketing, you learn that the food they make in marketing is all fake. It's all made out of plastic and glue and it's all it's all made and it's all like glazed with like paint and it's all fake. Meanwhile, the real stuff looks kind of messy and it's not very it's not very attractive to look at, but it's real food. This is this is the McDonald's menu. Where it's all fake. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg is what you order off the menu and get at your table. It look it's not a, it doesn't look anything like it does on the menu because that's real. Because what you got was real. What they're showing you is fake. And I think that's what it ultimately comes down to, is that this is a Yeah, this, and of course, this is from a first time writer, so I don't know why you handle hand this off to the new guy. I feel like you should hand this off to, you know, a writer who has proven how to handle not only legal dramas, but also, like, you know, female empowerment stories, stories about, you know, women and women's issues. But apparently they just handed this off to the new guy or something. I don't know what, I don't know how this happened. But yeah, first time writer is the one doing this. And then this, apparently the director of Deep Impact, which I didn't know, well, I didn't know Deep Impact was directed by a woman. So that's neat. I think it's a woman. Uh, let me. I don't want to misspeak. So, take a look at on the basis of sex. Directed by it's a. I think it's a Mimi. Is is their name? Ah, come on. In theater. Let's, all right. Let's take a look at movies. Upside Aquaman. Here we go. Mimi leader. Yeah, I was right. I thought so. I mean, it sounds like a female name. But yeah, I didn't know Deep Impact was directed by a woman. That's 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 interesting. That's inter- that's a really interesting thing. Oh, she's doing a thing about morning shows. Like a sort of uh sports talk, sports news or um uh what's it called? Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip style drama about the behind the scenes of a morning show. I thought to pay attention to that. But her main thing is recently has been The Leftovers, which I think is on – yeah, it's over on HBO. So this is her kind of coming back to film as a director, I believe. Uh, yeah, this is her first movie 
Oh, wow. Uh, TV movie, TV movie. Her first theatrical release since Thick as Thieves in 2009, 10 years ago. And that was Morgan Freeman and some guy I never heard of. Rada Serbezija. Something. I have no idea. Uh, Also known as The Code. So take that as you will. But... Yeah, I mean, she's not a bad director. Like she's, she, I'm sure uh, the leftovers is pretty good. I think I've heard some good things about it. Shameless, I've heard nothing but great things. She directed on that. She directed it on Almost Human. I love. She direct. What was which, which episode was this? We investigate simultaneous and sudden deaths of two genetically enhanced or chromed children. A fatal t- designer drug appears to be the. Okay, I think I remember this episode. So yeah, so, I mean, she's she's definitely a good director in her own right. But I feel like. The script she was given to work with ultimately couldn't couldn't uh, hold a candle to the actual thing. So I think this once again this ultimately comes down to the screenwriting, and if the screen screenplay is it as good, it's going to show up in the final product. So yeah, I'm guessing the documentary is pretty good, but uh, I'd have to I'd have to find that out for myself. Uh, let me know if you've seen it and what you think of it. But as for a tribute to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it's fine. But when you're dealing with somebody as iconic as her, it's like with the Thurgood Marshall movie. You'd think with somebody as iconic as Thurgood Marshall and Ruth Bader Ginsburg that you could get some actually compelling and um, like five-star level movies out. But ultimately you get basically marketable mediocrity, which is ultimately what Hollywood's best at. Be my boy's godmother. Be my sister. Mary is our foe. We ask that we never bow to her as we bow before you. You cannot raise an army. Many times you have said I cannot do what I have done. Do not play into their hands. Your heart has more within it than the men who counsel you. You would do well to watch your words. I will not be scolded by my inferior. Your inferior. If you murder me, you murder your sister. And you murder your queen. How did it come to this? Continuing through our leftovers of 2018, we've got a period piece in our hands. This is and this is Mary Queen of Scots. Uh I forget the director's name. Let me pull her up as well. I know she worked in um theater before this so she's not showing up on imdb's thing uh let me pull up the list itself mary queen of scots there we go uh josie rourke and and this is her first theatrical movie everything else has been well movie theatrical everything else she's done has been stage theatrical and you've got Sir Sharon in the title role of Mary Stuart, the Queen of Scotland, and Margot Robbie as Elizabeth, the Queen of England. And you be- you really begin um, when uh, like there's a bit of an of a in media res where Mary Stuart returns to where Mary Stuart is about to have her he- about to be beheaded, but and then it cuts back to when she arrives back in England from France. And so, well, Scotland from France, specifically. And 
it's it's mainly about how she was a she was a badass who took no prisoners and and didn't stand for people trying to get in her way of you know proving it's, that she was the rightful heir to the throne of England of England and basically how she was undermined at every level because they didn't like a woman acting as though she were a man except except when it's Elizabeth who uh who who openly admits and I believe even openly admitted to it in real life that she saw saw herself as a man which is part of the reason she never wed or had children cuz she didn't want to demean herself by being lesser than any man and so mary stewart is the one who had kids and uh was the real power pushing for pushing for the for scotland to uh, pushing for herself to be not only king uh, queen of uh scotland but queen of all of england and meanwhile you have every protestants who don't like that she's a Catholic and her, and her advisors are all kind of, kind of scheming against her because they want to be, they want the throne. And it's definitely very Game of Thrones-esque. I mean, it's kind of hard not to be. I mean, it's literally the inspiration, kind of the kind of inspiration for Game of Thrones. And, um, and so it follows her return to Scotland all the way up to her beheading. Although the last bit uh, her like twenty last twenty five years where she was kept in prison is cut is cut short, and they just cut from arriving in England to her beheading. But at the meantime, but most of it deals with her trying to run Scotland and everyone undermining her the whole time. And I gotta say, I like this. Uh, normally, on any other week, this would probably be my pick of the week, you know, especially for January. But this, but uh, we'll get to mine. Uh, as for the unpopped kernel, I'd have to say replicas. That's the one I would say don't see at all. Uh, but this is actually pretty good. Um, I will say it's, I mean, when you're dealing with a historical drama, it's hard to differentiate between fact and fiction because fi- history can be, the history is told by the winners and not all the facts are presented without, you know, unbiased. I, I, all the facts that are presented are presented with bias. So you have to, comb through everything to figure out what actually happened and with this they took a lot of liberties namely with the casting because you've got um i don't know his name but there's a a black actor who played the ambassador between england and scotland uh queen elizabeth's main handmaiden is played by Gemma chan who is a anglo-asian actress and there's a, a definitely heavier presence of of a more diverse cast than there would be in actual history to allow and I think that comes from the theater background because theater is much more open to interpretation where it's like it's okay that this figure is being played by somebody who's not the same skin you know played by a minority skin color because we're trying to present them with more roles rather than be wholly historically accurate and so I give that movie that that definitely carries over from from her from a theatrical background and i have to say that what and the and with the theatricality of it it did feel like i was watching a play a lot the performances felt like i was watching a play the staging a lot of times they, they were definitely film film that you know she knew how to handle cinema versus theater but when it's the dialogue it tends to be more focused on that it, there tends not to be a aside from this one climactic scene that was definitely not from history that fe- that allowed Margot Robbie and Saoirse Ronan to act off of each other. 
Uh, aside from that one scene, there isn't a whole lot of there isn't a whole lot of flash when it comes to the dialogue. It seems to be very focused on the dialogue itself, which is the, which kind of makes it more theatrical. That's sort of people. I think that's what you know. That's one of the complaints. People. It's not as bad as Les Miserables, where people complain that it's basically medium shots the whole time. Uh, this one does, ha- you know, she does know how to make use of the camera and the space, but at the same time, as far as historical dramas go, I probably wouldn't watch this again, personally, just because, number two, one, it's two hours long, and number two, even though it's good, it's not as good that I, it's not so good that I would continue to k- go back to it. It's not something I'd watch again and again. Personally, but as as it as a, you know, it's something like like a play that you pay to see once, and you see a per, see the performance. You know, it's it's good in that sense. You know, that's just but that's just my opinion. Maybe other people uh, had a thing for it. I do. I I love Sir Sharonin and Margot Robbie is almost unrecognizable as Queen Elizabeth at points, and they definitely play off uh, Elizabeth as being vulnerable. They mention her having smallpox, and they mention her being frail and un. And heart, you know, not as much of a ball buster and a like a like a just a ugh, confident, strong leader like Mary Stewart is. But ultimately, as much as as good as this was, it's not something I would watch again personally, just because it's not it doesn't have quite the same things I look for in a movie as I would like a stage play. So. You know, I would say watch it as a stage play. You know, see it and and, and absorb it and and enjoy the theatricality of it. But you know, it's like probably not going to be something that'll go down in history as like one of the greatest sort of movies about this period. I think there, I think there's more. You know, I think for a theater director moving into film, it's good. But I feel like you know that's still a stepping stone. They have to figure out how they want to continue to work in film if they so choose. Otherwise, yeah, it's a good movie overall. Thumbs up. We can't save them, but you'll hate yourself if you don't try. Just tell me, son, where you want me to bury you. I'm not going to die. Anyways, here I am, still here. So thank you. Thank you for... So, Lucas Hedges is back. After his wonderful performance in Boy Erased, I get to see him again in a movie directed by his dad. Yeah, fun fact, if you didn't recognize the last name. Uh, apparently, I wasn't sure, but I looked into it, and yes, Lucas Hedges is the son of of director and writer Peter Hedges, best known for About a Boy and writing the screenplay for What's Eating Gilbert Grape. I believe he also did uh, Dan, Dan, what is it, Dan Who Stays at Home or Dan's, whatever the one with uh, Steve, Steve Carell is. He did that as well. And this is his latest movie that deals, this one is my pick of the week. This is the one I say, if you've got the chance, go see it. This is about the opioid crisis through the lens of a mother and her son. Uh, the movie opens with Julia Roberts coming back with her kids, one from a previous marriage and one from her, and two and the other two from her current marriage, and she is as she pulls into her driveway home, she sees that her oldest son Ben, played by Lucas Hedges, has returned af- uh, from rehab, 
and everyone else has kind of written him off. They they don't trust him. They think something's fishy. And Julie Roberts is just so pleased to have her son home for the holidays. And as far as she knows, it's all above the belt. And and so over the course of two days, we see uh, the uh, Ben the, uh, Lucas Hedges go try to cope with being at home, especially when he had was what has was notorious in that in the town at in, as part of the drug scene. And this movie does not shy away from. The, the harsh realities of the opioid crisis. It tackles every angle that I could think of, from the prescription from 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 a scene where Julia Roberts chews out her son's old uh, old doctor for prescribing opioids as a painkiller, to learning about you know the things that Ben had to do as an addict, to seeing his friends suffer as addicts. To find out, you know, fight, to learn that he that somebody died because he that he because he dealt to them and and provided the drugs and it's all and you learn all of this through the dialogue and through the circumstances. The story reveals the background of what happened through dialogue and through what's going on in the plot. Uh, basically, what happens is. While Ben is back, he goes out with his mom to shop at the mall for some presents for his uh, stepbrother and sister, uh, and or not stepbrother, half brother and sister. They didn't come from the previous marriage. They are they are his biological brother and sister, just on their mom's side. And so he so he wants to find them something from him that's from him personally. And while he's there, he gets spotted by one of his addict friends. And he, and he, and it, you know, he stuff suffers, he, you know, gets caught with some stuff. He has a, he has a, he has a meltdown, he has a bit of a meltdown and needs to go to a meeting of, I believe, Narcotics Anonymous. Uh, they don't specify what, but basically he has to go to a meeting where he meet where he, where he tries to, uh, tries to handle, um, tries to handle, uh, What's been going on, and then as things go on, it's about how everything he's been doing has kind of been a farce, not a, like a comical farce, but like a facade. He's been putting on a facade, for, and then it isn't until that while at, while they're at midnight mass, their house gets broken into and their dog gets stolen, and Ben, his mom, go looking for it. And Ben knows exact. Once Ben finds out who exactly it is, he ditches his mom, and his mom is left wondering what went, what happened to her son, and Ben having to come to terms with everything he's been doing, and every you know coming, he's like laying in, you know, having made his bed, and now he must lie in it. And it's a powerful movie, man. <laughs> Lucas Hedges, this between this and Boy Erased, dude can handle himself alongside some of the. Best in the business, Nicole. And Nicole, uh, in Boy Raised, he was alongside Nicole Kidman and Russell Crowe. Here, he's alongside Julia Roberts, and he's able to hold his own against uh, alongside them. So this dude's got what I think. This dude has got what it takes. He's not like I think he's going to be understated. I feel like he may go the route of a character actor. We'll see. We'll see what roles he gets. But for what he's giving us, he's he's very capable. 
dude has got what it takes as for an actor. So I'm really interested to see where his career goes from here. Uh, but yeah, so this is this not only deals with the opioid crisis and tackles the pain the painkiller as the origin for the for the addiction, but it also covers how people will take advantage of you in the school system, how the enti- how entire neighborhoods have been ruined and laid waste by it, and then how society has basically become indifferent to it all. Like there's a scene where um, Julie Roberts. Uh, after Ben goes missing, wants to get an updated uh, medic, um, uh, updated uh, dosage of meth- I believe methadone or maybe Narcan, something to uh, in case she finds Ben overdosed. And the and the twenty four hour pharmacy where she goes set has like a religious or like a conservative sort of policy where it's like we can't give out this because we don't condone you know a drug abuse. And yet they, and yet Julia Roberts choose her, choose the pharmacist out for still prescribing the opioid, it's the Vicodin and the uh, oxycodone and the oxycontin that they're that, that get them started in the first place. But yet when they want to try and use something to ease them off the high, you're like, oh no, we can't do that. We don't want to promote illegal drug use. And then meanwhile, Ben can stop at that same pharmacy and get exactly what he needs to do drugs. So it's the exact indifference of it all that people don't actually care. They just want to make it look like they care. And there's a whole, you know, there's a scene, you know, there's the scene where, uh, towards the end, there's a scene where Julie Roberts is breaking down in a police station because they want her to stand in line. Meanwhile, she is, she is for, you know, it's not, it's one thing when somebody's trying to cut in line because they think that they, they, they're trying, you know, they they're thinking that they have an emergency when they don't. This is a woman who legitimately believes her son is going to end up overdosed and wants to save him. And the police are like, "Ma'am, you're going to have to wait in line. Please wait your turn and stand in line like everybody else, and then we'll have you fill out the proper paperwork." And it's like, "Oh my God, why? Like, literally, just stop for a second and hear what she has to say, and then maybe refer her to like emergency services or something. Like, hey, you know, look, look, we'll direct you to the nine, we'll direct you to our emergency services, but." Yeah, it's like it's this cold indifference from from the law enforcement in the town and from the medical community in the town who just don't do genuinely do not care to how to about solving the problem, and it does all of this without being really pre- without being too preachy. It is the exact amount of preaching that you would expect from Julia Roberts, whose mother who is who has a mother of an addict, is much more informed about. What, why things happen the way they do and, and why they're not getting any better. And so you see how it's basically a small encapsulation of the opioid crisis in a single hundred minute movie. And it's while it's doing that, it is also telling this really beautiful story about a mom doing whatever it takes to protect her son, even though he he doesn't want her to get involved and he feels so much guilt about everything that he's done because of his addiction and you know as somebody who not specifically opioids but definitely has had family members suffer from addictive you know addiction as a disease and had family members who have died because of it who have lost their livelihoods because of it yeah this hits home really hard and it's really a beautiful story, and you know Peter Hedges, the dude knows what he's doing. He's a professional. He has a he has a good eye and and mind for storytelling, and he presented it to us 
in a per- in a way in a way that makes perfect sense. You know, it's everything is revealed to us not through visual, not through flashbacks, but through the pit characters talking to each other. It's through the dialogue, and it happens in real time. Sort of, it's not real time because it's two hours, but it happens over the course of two days. But we learn all about the backstory of the of of Lucas's character Ben and what happened to him all through how he interacts with the people around him. And I think that's what lay, let. And I think that's what really hit home. I don't know if this would end up on my on my. It would probably be an honorable mention, but I don't know if I could fit it in. At any rate, this is my pick of the week, and if you get the chance, please do check out Ben is Back. It is a genuinely great movie, and it deserves an audience, especially with how with how prescient the subject matter is. So, with that being said, that deals that takes care of all the reviews. I wanted to fit if Beale Street could talk in here, but that's the theater where I was seeing everything just couldn't fit it in its schedule. It had it was right it was already in the middle of showing if Beale Street could talk before uh I, you know after you know as soon as I got out of Bennett's back, so I couldn't fit them both in. I had to pick one. So with the review portion out of the way, let's take a look at our winners and losers in the box office report. And now the popcorn junkie checks in with this week's box office report. All right. Uh, since the weekend is opening up, let's take a look at some of the dropouts. Um, so it looks like the biggest dropouts were The Mule and Vice, which dropped out from six and seven, respectively. And then, other than that, uh, Green Book stayed the same. The Ralph Ritchie and they dropped a bit further. But yeah, it looks like. Most of the most of them stayed about the same. Um, the only new release that didn't even make it into the top ten was Replicas at two point five million dollars. And like I like I brought up, it I because I knew how much it cost to advertise. I can actually tell you how much it's losing. It cost forty million dollars to make between its budget and its advertising. So this is a monumental flop. Oh, it's so beautiful. It is truly something. Uh, mean, all right. So let's take a look at the top seven itself. Dropping down from number four to number seven is Bumblebee, which opened, which brought in six point seven million dollars this weekend, bringing its domestic total up to one hundred and eight million, and its overall global earnings to three hundred and sixty-four point seven million dollars. Still, still a success. Not as a, much of a runaway success as the Transformers. As the other, as the Michael Bay Transformers, but still, still managing to hold its own. No, you know, successful enough. Mary Poppins uh, brought, uh, went down from number three to number six, bringing in seven point two million dollars this weekend, bringing its domestic total up to one hundred and fifty point six million, and its worldwide gross up to two hundred and eighty-seven point eight million dollars. Well past its two, uh, you know, its. Um, well past what you would what you would estimate to be its baseline uh, cost to met, cost to met, cost to produce. So this movie is a success, be, you know, despite people's uh, misgivings about how it relates to the first one. And yeah, it, you know, it's not surprising that Mary Poppins movies did so well. So good for it. Kind of wish it was better, but it is what it is. 
Dropping from number two to number five, Escape Room brought in $8.9 million, bringing its domestic total up to $32.4 million and its worldwide total up to $34.9. Not a whole lot coming in from the foreign markets. They aren't as into it. But because it costs $9 million to make, expect plenty more Escape Room movies to come. Meanwhile, uh, jumping up from number five to number four is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which brought in $9 million this weekend bringing its domestic total up to $147.7 million, and its worldwide total up to $302.3 million. The, the foreign markets are really pushing this one along. They've essentially doubled what it's earning here in America. And for good reason. This is an Academy, this, this is an Academy Award-winning Academy Award contender, because nothing Disney and Pixar did this year can compare. And if, and if Disney and Pixar win, yeah, you shouldn't be surprised... But you can tell that the, that the voters of the Academy weren't paying attention. Because this one is the best animated movie to come out last year. Period. Bar none. Um, I should also mention that on the basis of sex, dro- jumped up from 16 to 8 as a nice... Uh, because of the increase in its uh, distribution. Though that still brings its total gross up to $10 million. And I believe that one also cost like 20 or 30 to make. So it's not exactly a runaway success either. Premiering at number three is A Dog's Way Home, which brought in $11.3 million this weekend. And just under its budget of $18 million, so I fully expect this to make back its money without a problem. People just love dogs. It doesn't matter how bad the movie is, it's got a pup, people will, people will see it. Aquaman finally lost its number one spot to another premiere this weekend, and it brought, as it brought in $17.2 million dollars. And bringing its domestic gross up to 287.8. And it's worldwide total over a billion dollars. I'm guessing a lot of that came from China. Let's take a look at the results. 284 million from China. Not surprisingly. They have a lot of disposable income over there. And they especially support the sort of big budget. uh, Like they're enough to double. I think that's about the same amount as America made for the movie. If not a little less. Uh... United Kingdom brought in $23 million. South Korea ate this up at $36 million. Uh, Mexico had this at $27 million. France had this at $28 And then Brazil brought in $29 million for it. Australia, 19 Russia, 18 So, yeah, a lot of people are digging this movie. And it's and it's definitely a decent DC movie. You wouldn't expect Aquaman to be one of the top tier DC EU movies, but that's what happens when you have people who have no idea what they're doing. So yeah, good for those guys. And hopefully this means this leads to a more, better movies coming from DC and Warner Brothers. And then finally, premiering at number one is The Upside, which brought in nineteen and a half million dollars domestically. No foreign markets, uh, no foreign releases for this one. But it costs $37.5 million to make. So I'm, it, I'm guessing it'll probably make some of that back. But we'll see with, a, with some of the stuff left to come if this will hang in there long enough to make it, make it break even. But so far, not a lot of the stuff premiering has underperformed. But it doesn't matter if it premieres low. It only matters if it stays low. And if it drops out precipitously, then, <laughs> then there's nothing you can do. So that was the week that was. Now let's take a look to the week ahead with the Trailer Talk segment. Coming this summer.
It's Trailer Talk. Rated R starts Friday. There is literally only one new release next weekend. And it is the probably the big January release for this year. And that is M. Night Shyamalan's next entry in the Unbreakable Superhero Universe, whatever you want to call it, uh, with Glass. We had Unbreakable, that centered on Bruce Willis. We had Splice, which centered on James McAvoy. And now we have one dedicated to the man himself, Samuel L. Jackson, with and Mr. Glass. Let's take a look at that trailer. Elijah's changed over the years. My nephew and I were talking about it. We weren't sure if the woman here is his sister or his mother or what. There is a reason for that. He's too smart for them. You won't be lonely anymore. You have two new friends. Oh, from M. Night Shyamalan. The three of you think you have extraordinary gifts like something out of a comic book. I've developed an effective treatment for this disorder. The light will force a different identity to take over. Por favor, senora. I want my headphones back. Step away from the controls now, little doctor. Can't beat the beast! So you're not going to shake my hand and let me walk out of here? <laughs> Good for you. I have, I'm still, I'm still wary on James McAvoy. He's not a bad actor, but I think I, it, it's hard for this to, uh, I mean, it's hard for me to take it seriously because I feel like part of it is, 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 is such a, it's such a pastiche of like stereotypes. That sounds like the bad guys teaming up. God, I love Samuel Jackson. Do you believe? I will say, him as the Beast is 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 definitely great. Avengers. I have to get out of here before he gets. It's hard to tell how good Bruce Willis will be though, because I know he tends to phone things in anymore. Always underestimate the mastermind. This January, it has begun, David. Real villains Someone will require your full attention. are among us. You shouldn't be hiding in the shadows. Real heroes want to try and stop us. Are within us. A lot of people are going to die. Now, we'd like a PB and J sandwich. Yeah, it's hard, that one character always feels like it's a transphobic, like, ca- like joke. And all right, ooh, isn't he scary? He's in drag. You need to get out of here. It's hard. To, yeah, it's. It's. I, I'm not one to speak on those, but it's definitely a topic that he's brought up in this case. What have you done, Elijah? Yeah, I love this. I, hey, focusing on Samuel L. Jackson, you could you, that's the best thing to do in this, with this franchise. Um, and who knows? They, we may get we may be hinting at more spinoffs down the line. So, uh, we'll have to take a. I'm going to take this week to rewatch Unbreakable and Splice and see what my see if my thoughts on Splice have changed now that they know it's part of the the universe the the shared universe. And see how it comp- and see how it all adds up with glass. But hey, you know, M. Night Shyamalan could do a solid su- superhero universe. I- I'm all for it. You know, superheroes are my thing, and I love superhero stories. So we'll see if um, 
we'll see if he is able to deliver on that. Because, hey, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I gave the, oh, what was it? What was that really bad one with uh, Amanda Stenberg? Uh, I'll have to look that up. Hold on. God, what was that one called? It was the somethings. The something ones. It was it was basically X-Men as written for young adults. And, you know, it's, it's written by young adult authors. The Darkest Minds. I gave that a pass because, hey, it did my superhero thing and I love my superheroes. So I was willing to give that one a little bit more of a pass. But we'll see how M.I. Shyamalan fares. Uh, I'm willing to give him a shot because, hey, it's, if nothing else, we get... We get Samuel L. Jackson, and he he could read the phone book, and I would watch it. But otherwise, that about does it for this episode, which means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, you can be sure to favorite page and whitelist us on your ad blocker and check out all of our other fine programming that's there. Vanessa, I believe is still, uh, you know, um, she was, uh, her Las Vegas out of the shop was actually featured in an article recently. So I believe she's still doing the podcast about it as well. And then of course, Donna over at Snarkast is, is doing, doing great stuff with, uh, with the family business and once more with feeling and beyond the cabin in the woods, all great stuff. And if you're a podcaster yourself and you want to join our network, be sure to leave us a message at, uh, you sure to send us a message at gummycatnetworks.com, uh, gummycatnetworks at gmail.com. And we'll get back to you and see if you can join our lovely family of podcasters. Otherwise you can, uh, find us on your all, almost every available podcasting outlet we're on itunes google play spotify spreaker stitcher iHeartRadio, and hopefully soon on podbean so i can add that as hope as another way of like a patreon sort of account which sat which i will bring up as well i keep forgetting to bring that up but no matter where you're listening to podcasts look for popcorn junket you see my orange bug chopping on popcorn staring at the movies be sure to you can be, you can subscribe to us and make sure you leave a five star rating and review and let people know that you like the show and that you, that they, that they should check it out as well. Uh, you can also do that by sharing us on your various social media. I'm on Facebook.com at at the popcorn at popcorn junkie. Uh, po- uh, I'm on Twitter at corn junkie pod. I'm on Instagram at popcorn junkie podcast and I'm on Stardust at popcorn junkie. So if you want to head out, you want to follow any of those there, and if you want to join us over on Stardust, we're having a lot of fun, and you should too. And then, uh, as I mentioned, uh, if you want to support the show, you can donate as little as a dollar a month on Patreon, have access to an entire backlog of of additional content, and even help make some more. So if you want to help make the podcast help the podcast grow in your own way, and get shoutouts on every episode, and even suggest content, you can do so at Patreon.com/slash/PopcornJunkie. And if there's anything else you want to say to me, any kind of feedback you want to give, any kind of uh, corrections you want me to make, absolutely correct me if I've made a mistake. And if you have a difference of opinion, if you didn't like Mary Queen of Scots or Ben is Back, but you liked Replicas, if what, whatever your thoughts are, I would love to hear back from you. I'd love to include an audience 
uh, feedback segment. But in order to do that, you need to send me a message at popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com and leave somewhere in either the subject or the message that you give me explicit permission to use your message as is. Otherwise, I will simply paraphrase and mention it in passing. But if you... But if you want to say something to me, have you know, don't hold back. Send those messages to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. That about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey. And I gotta say, January is actually doing a little bit better in that it's not a complete train wreck. It's just it's just a mild fender bender. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nathio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nathio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. So yeah, this was I think I think we did well. Uh, and I think I might be able to fit fit it and cut all this out, damn it.